But let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father God, we do just come before you this morning realizing that you are the hope of the world, um, that without you, our efforts will amount to little. And so we commit this morning to you. Hopefully we commit this church to you and our efforts. And we would pray that um, they would glorify you, that we'd be able to make a difference and that as we seek and strive and, and labor to love others, it would somehow please you and, and we would sense your satisfaction and your presence working with us and through us. And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so let me just start off with this question. Uh, the video would have done it for me, but I'll, I'll just do it manually. Uh, why do a human rights series? Why would we do that? I mean, what are we, some kind of um, activist church? You know, are we like modern day hippies and, and now we've got our new cause or something like that? Are we a liberal church? Uh, are we getting off track? Are we forsaking the gospel of Jesus Christ to, to just focus on um, the social gospel? And uh, I would simply say the reason for doing a human rights series is simply this. Um, the whole gospel it includes not just the mouth or the head, but it includes the heart and the hands and the feet. And this series is in some way a, a confession that I need to make. And so I stand before you this morning and I've got a confession. And my confession is this, um, that I'm a hypocrite. And I hate hypocrites. Um, I hate them. Uh, I hate them. I talk bad about them. I slander them a lot. I enjoy slandering them because hypocrites really bother me. I don't know, maybe you're in the same boat. Um, But I've got a confession, I'm a hypocrite. And I realized this because uh, it occurred to me that um, hypocrites aren't just hypocrites because of things they do. Hypocrites are hypocrites oftentimes because of what they don't do. And there's a whole category in the Old Testament that really drove this home to me, and it's, it's what's called sins of ignorance. That, that the, in the Old Testament, they would actually bring sacrifices to God, and they would sacrifice to atone for sins, and some of those atonements would be for sins of ignorance, sins they didn't know they'd committed. Because there's a category of when things ought to be, or we ought to do, and if we refrain from doing it, it's, it's wrong, and we can't just hide behind, well, I wasn't smart enough, or I didn't know enough, or, or whatever else. Ignorance doesn't change the fact that something that should have been done in this world for good was left undone, and so there's, there's sacrifices for sins of ignorance. And I guess what I've realized is I'm a hypocrite um, because I've allowed myself to float along in a situation without really confronting it head on. And, and here's the situation. Um, all of you, I'm sure, know about the Titanic. And most of you, especially if you were in junior high when it came out, have seen the Titanic twice, three times, four times. Um, but here's what happens in the Titanic. If you remember, it gets towards the end. It's icy, frigid waters. It's why the iceberg was there. And, and they, the boat's going down. And there's not enough lifeboats, and it's going down too fast for the lifeboats to be filled. And so a bunch of these lifeboats get sent out. And there's actually people that work for the, the White Star Lines, okay, 
boat lines that are on these boats. These are, these are men that are on these boats. These are employees that are on these boats. And there's women and children that aren't on those lifeboats. Okay, do you get the picture? So it's dark, it's at night, there's chaos. There's these big lifeboats that could hold um, dozens of people. And there's men that are on these lifeboats that are supposed to be in a leadership position, a leadership capacity, and they're out there floating and they're safe. And there's women and children that are going down with the ship. Now, if you remember the scene in the movie, which was really amazing, this, this one little sequence, is there's a boat, there's one of those little lifeboats, and there's two guys in it, and they're seeing all these people ending up in the ocean that are going to drown or freeze to death if they don't go and get them. And these two guys in the boat are kind of yearning to go save these people, and the others in the boat say to them, no. You can't take this lifeboat close to those people. Now, you remember why? Because there's a risk. Um, The risk is if you take this lifeboat to where all those frantic people are, that they might somehow tip it or submerge it or sink it. That's the risk. And so these two men kind of sit there and in their hearts they realize something's going on and there's a need and they need to address it and they kind of back down because they, they cannot, one, either challenge the people in the boat to enough of a degree to where the whole boat will now move towards it or they're not willing themselves to take the risk where their own life and their own safety will be put in harm's way. And then after a long period of time when almost no noises, no people, no, no cries are, are going on or, or being heard, they kind of take a boat and they float back in in the midst. Um, and that's, uh, what was her name anyways in the movie? Rose. Yeah, that's when they got Rose. <laughs> um, they take the boat back and sure enough, there's only like one or two people still alive. And everybody else is froze to death or, or drowned. And and here's here's the here's the reality, okay. I've been born into a a lifeboat that's safe, but the majority of the people in this world don't enjoy the same safety and privilege that I do. And I happen to be, because of where I've pursued going and, and I feel like what God's called me to do, I happen to be just one of these little worker guys, like those little worker guys on the lifeboats. And I'm in a position to, to see what's going on um, and get emotionally tied to it and want to do something. And I realize that in a lot of ways, I've taken the easy way out for a long time and not led my boat or my life right into the, the thick of it, where there's risk and where there's sacrifice. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in ministry. My life's not about myself. I settled that a long time ago. It really isn't, okay? Um, it's about helping other people. But what I've kind of realized is this. Um, I'm sitting on a little tricycle. I'm a grown man sitting on a little tricycle, and I'm pedaling like a mile a minute and going like one mile an hour and I'm all giddy and excited with myself. Look at what I'm doing. And, uh, and that's my confession. 
And there are opportunities and there are risks that can be taken, that should be taken, that up until this point in my life, I haven't been able to see clearly enough to take. And I don't want to live that life anymore. I, I think God puts an A challenge out in front of people, and if they take that A challenge, he's going to give them an A life and an A blessing and an A helping of his presence in their life. God will go with us. And if we turn down that, God will give us a B choice, I think. And if we take the B choice, God will give us a B helping of himself, a B helping of blessings, and we'll go on and do that. And if we, if we don't choose that one because that's even too risky or involves too much sacrifice, then I think God will give us a C choice. And, and I think he's a lot like in grad school. You know, D's not a passing grade, so I think it stops there. So you got the C choice and then nothing. And God will just say, you know what? You're worthless. I can't do anything with you because you're way too wrapped up in yourself. And so I'm looking at it and saying, man, maybe there's a challenge out there for me in my life that I can go after. There's over 300 verses in the Bible on the poor. And so there's some statistics that that I kind of started pulling together and thinking maybe these are the kinds of things that the Bible was talking about when it um, kind of came up with those 300 verses, when God inspired those and let me just read a couple of these to you. It's estimated that a child is orphaned by AIDS at the rate of one every 14 seconds. When was the last time you met one of those people that were orphaned by AIDS every 14 seconds? I've never met one. Um, that's my confession. Okay, I'll keep going. Children under, the fifth, under 15 years of age, children under 15 years of age, that have AIDS and are dying of AIDS, 2.3 million. Nine out of 10 children with HIV or AIDS are African. And that's what really led us a year ago to start pursuing this partnership with Uganda and to get involved in Africa. Here's some, um, something about women that, that would be surprising to probably most of you. The number of missing women, quote-unquote missing women, killed for gender-related reasons is of the same order of magnitude as the estimated 191 million human beings who have lost their lives directly or indirectly as a result of all the conflicts and wars of the 20th century. Or put it in another term here, violence against women causes every two to four years a mountain of corpses equal to the Jewish Holocaust. Those are things we don't talk about. That when rebels go into countries, women suffer. That in countries where we could put pressure on as, as a country or a nation, either through political reasons or, or going and getting involved um, through justice initiatives, that there are women being killed that are being treated as if um, they're not of any value. And it's going on in such a magnitude that every two to four years, it's a holocaust of women. And those things are staggering to me. And there's more, and if you visit outside, you'll see more. 
And so the Pharisees, I think, had the same kind of thing going on in their day. And so Jesus shows up, and they look at Jesus, and they say, well, who are you to take our authority and our attention? You're taking the limelight from us. We're, we're the big dogs in town, and, and we're popular. Everyone comes to us for everything, and we're well-regarded, and now you're stealing the limelight. People are following you, all this other stuff. Who are you, and by what authority are you doing that? And Jesus gets so fed up with them because what does that show in terms of their heart and where their soul is at? And so Jesus at one, one time, at one point says, you know, you're children of your father. And, and they think, well, our father is Abraham. We're descendants of Abraham. And Jesus says, no, you're, you're children of the devil. <laughs> you devour people. And you do not have in mind the things of God. And and. And so the Pharisees are this kind of example of what we're not supposed to be. And, and just listen to some of the things that God says in Jeremiah 5.28. The wicked do not plead the cause of the orphan, that they may prosper. And they do not defend the rights of the poor. And shall I not punish these people, declares the Lord. On such a nation as this, shall I not avenge myself? God's not going to allow us to say, oh, I didn't really know that was going on. He's saying this whole nation is held responsible for the fact that what should be happening is not happening. And the people that don't defend the rights of the orphan or the widow or the alien or the foreigner, God says right there, they're wicked. And they do not do what they're supposed to do that I might bless them and that they might prosper. And the reason they don't do it is because of their own wants, needs, and desires. And God says... Um, shall I not punish these people? 1 John 3.17 says this, But whoever has the world's goods and beholds his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? And so Jesus sees these Pharisees and says, Man, look around you. These people are God's children and they're valuable. They're not without value. They're made in the image of God. And all you care about is status and looking good in public and having your reward in full right here and right now. And how in the world can we look at that and say the love of God is in you? That's what John says. And so we have to, in some sense, challenge ourselves because we can't hide behind a veil of ignorance. I can't. And this is, this is mostly talking to me. This is my own pep talk for myself because I feel like the majority of the rest of my life is going to be devoted to these kinds of things. You heard a couple weeks ago that High Desert Christian College hand, voted to hand it over to Antioch. And so in my mind, I started thinking, you know what? What if we started like a, a human rights school instead of just a Bible school or this school or that school? What if we actually started taking some things and taking Scripture and teaching it while also weaving into it the heart of God for people. I mean, I feel like my generation would jump all over that because we're desperate to make a difference and to do something with our lives. Turn to Deuteronomy with me, and we're going to spend some time in chapter 10 of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 10. Somebody took my drink. (laughs) 
Deuteronomy chapter 10, and um, we'll start in verse 12. And I'm going to read for a bit, and so hopefully you can get into this. If you're reading along, I'm in the NIV. If you don't have your Bible, maybe just close your eyes, because I need you to to just get this, okay? Um, Because we're going to be talking about it, but these are huge, huge verses. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12, and it says this, And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. And so these are the laws that are coming to the people of Israel. And this is the passage that Jesus, one of the passages Jesus uses when he's asked what's most important, and he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. And this is, Jesus always borrows from the Old Testament. There's a continuity there. He understands what it all boils down to, and he just reminds them what they should already know. You shouldn't be arguing about what's most important. It's right there. Love God completely. And it continues. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you, their descendants, above all the nations as it is today. So then circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. He chose you of his own free accord. God looked at the nation, he looked at your forefathers, and he picked them, he chose them, and it was God's doing, and so you got to realize now that you have to set your heart apart unto him. Circumcise your heart, set it apart unto him, and don't be stiff-necked any longer. Don't think that it's all about you and, and think that you can make demands of God. God has blessed you richly, now live up underneath that. And he continues... For the Lord your God is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the alien, giving him food and clothing. And you are to love those who are aliens, for you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. And I think we've got that verse up there. Now, here's basically how I would break this down. If we're really going to get it, if we're going to really understand life the way it's supposed to be understood and lived, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna basically separate two things, and God is going to be big, and we're going to be small. Our God needs to be bigger. Now, he's already big. Where he needs to be bigger is in our understanding and in our thinking and in how we live our life and choose to make our decisions in our affections and in our emotions. Our God needs to be bigger, and we need to be smaller. And so it's kind of like a teeter-totter. They can't both be um, big, and I think if they're both small, it won't work that way either. They go kind of like on a teeter-totter. And so if God becomes bigger and we become smaller, it's put right again. Now here's the interesting thing is as we get bigger, God becomes smaller, and it's easier for us to look down on other people. I mean, the whole idea of, you know, um, immigration in our country right now, 
you know, don't worry, I'm not going to talk politics. But the whole idea of immigration right now is whether we should let them in, whether we should let them out, whether we should kick them out. You know what the real answer is? For me as a Christian, that's for the government to decide. It's for me to feed them, clothe them, and love them. The Hispanic community in Bend isn't a political issue of whether they belong or not, or what, what, whether some legislation should treat them a certain way or not. They are real people that are foreigners in this land, and I'm supposed to, and I'm called to, love them. I'm not the government. It's not for me to decide where they belong. It's for me to love them and not to label them and treat them as they're small or little and I'm bigger than they are. God's big, I'm small, I'm on the same level with them. I golfed at Pronghorn one time, I wasn't going to mention this, but it was really crazy to me that some of the, the, the migrant workers that were there and, and just the, the rich and poorness of it. Um, when I go to hit my little white ball, they have to scurry and hide underneath the trees. And then when I pass, they come back out on the, on the course. Now, it would be, if it was junior high workers, it'd be the same thing. But it really began to, to show me there's a real interesting dynamic between rich and poor, isn't there? Now, I'm not saying don't golf at pronghorn, but if you golf at pronghorn, don't let yourself become big. Golf is someone who's small and, and smile at people and love them and realize that you are no different than those other people. Now, I'm tired of something that's been going on for the last 20 years, and it's called the self, if you need a label, it's called the self-esteem gospel. And what the self-esteem gospel basically came around and said was, you're made in the image of God, you are valuable, and so the way we need to solve kind of all these emotional problems and psychological problems and relational problems that you've got is for you to have more self-esteem. And so if we can just get you to think higher of yourself and and pump into your self-esteem, that's going to fix it all. And I'll be honest with you, uh, what I I don't need someone telling me um, that I'm big. It's the last thing I need. I know it's a lie. I mean, I think we all know it's a lie. What we need is not just a heftier dose of, of self-esteem and thinking how great we are. And it's the emperor's clothes bit, you know? It's like, you can take me and self-esteem gospel me up and dress me all up with that, and I'll be, I'll be, you can push me, but I'm not going to go out that door because I know I'll be naked. And, and I'm, I don't have that much confidence. But it's, it's not... It doesn't dress us. It doesn't fit. It's not real. We're supposed to be humble and say, you know what, God, I was nothing and you made me something and it's all about you and you deserve the praise and the glory and the honor and my relationship with you, my positional status with you, the fact that I'm a son or a daughter or that I've been saved or rescued, that I don't have to have fear, that's what makes it valuable. I'm not just going to walk around and try and tell myself, um, look in the mirror. I am somebody. I'm a big deal. <laughs> Who has that shirt, Kip? No, it's, somebody's got that shirt. Um, I'm a big deal. I don't know. We don't need the self-esteem gospel. And so the first thing is God needs to be big. The second thing is God that we need to be small. I worked at a summer camp in Pine Summit in the mountains above L.A. And, and it was funny. They tell you you're going to come be a counselor. And then when you get there, you realize you have to clean toilets too. 
Any of you guys worked at a summer camp? I mean, it's crazy. You come in and you think you're going to just, oh, I'm just working with kids. I'm a big deal. And then all of a sudden they tell you, here's a scrub brush, and, and you've got a whole week out of the summer where you're just on toilet duty. And then every weekend you have to help clean the camp and you're on toilet duty. And you emotionally, like, react to that. It's beneath me. And some handle it well. Others freak out the whole summer and you'll never see them again. They, they never. And then I came back the next summer and I was in leadership. And it was funny watching a whole new crop of people deal with it emotionally just like I'd had to deal with it the summer before. And you realize that you're no better than the men or the women that, that have jobs cleaning toilets and that everybody pitches in, everybody makes it work. You're not special. You need to treat yourself as a servant. When we're low, we can understand Jesus' words of no servant is above his master. You need to do this. When we're low, we understand that we can serve and love others. When we're low and we're small, sacrifice and risk isn't that big of a deal. What have we got to lose? When we're small, we look at, alongside at others in that whole idea of brethren and togetherness, and we're in this, um, that, that kind of comes out. And so we need to be small. And so the way I put this is we can't change the world unless we can clean toilets. Gandhi said this, I like your Christ. I do not like your Christians. Your Christians are so unlike your Christ. And so the first thing is this, we can't change the world until we can clean toilets. Let's go back to that verse in Deuteronomy and um, look at just the last little passage of that again and just get this part of it. It says this, And you are to love those who are aliens. For you yourself were aliens in Egypt. If you understand where you came from, and you understand who you are, then it's going to be easy for you to do to others what I've done to you. Now, my dad, it's an interesting thing. I'm, I'm a first-generation American. I never really knew it growing up, probably until I got to grad school. I'm a first-generation American. My dad was born in 1944 in Holland during World War II. They'd come and cleaned out all the men, so my grandfather used to have to hide when my grandmother was far enough along in her pregnancy, um, he had to go miles to get food. When she was far enough along in the pregnancy where she couldn't go get food, my grandfather had to dress up like a woman and pedal a bike to go get food for the family. So my dad was born into that, grew up in war-torn Europe, and around the age of like 9 or 11, he can correct me later, they immigrated to the States with $20 in their pocket. And as soon as they got here, um, his mother came down with MS um, and became wheelchair-bound. And my grandfather and my dad worked probably three jobs each, um, as long as my dad could remember to keep the family going. Okay, So now here's the interesting thing. When I was seven, so 1979, when I was seven, my dad calls up my mom and gave her one-day notice and said, we're going to have a Cambodian family come live with us. Now, what's going on in Cambodia in 1979 is um, the U.S. came in and bombed Cambodia. You remember that as part of the Vietnam War? So the pro-U.S. government that was in Cambodia began to lose control, and kind of the socialist rebels that were in the hills were able to get a lot of popular support because now America was bombing Cambodia. And so those rebels, those socialist rebels called the Khmer Rouge, 
ended up in 74 taking over Cambodia. And they started systematically killing anyone with education that had been a doctor, a lawyer, a writer, a, a journalist, anything like that. They drove everybody out of the cities and into these kind of farm communities and made them kind of farm in this, this whole nationwide system of socialism. Child soldiers uh, and the like. The head of this army was, was Pol Pot, if you've ever heard of Pol Pot. And they, in the period of four years, in 79, they were ousted. Um, and, and so it was about four or five years. In a period of, of four or five years, one and a half million people died. Now, that's in a country of seven and a half million people. So it goes down on paper is probably one of the greatest genocide slash atrocity slash uh, mass killings by a dictator um, in the 20th century. I mean, the statistics are, are staggering. And so this family had escaped, gone to, um, come all the way through, got into a refugee camp in Thailand. When they came into our house um, with shaved heads because of uh, the, uh, the refugee camps and lice and stuff like that, um, they began to tell stories of spending days in trees where the Khmer Rouge soldiers, the rebel soldiers, were underneath them and having to put hands over babies' mouths, worrying that they might be suffocating the baby but not wanting the baby to scream. Um, crazy stories like that. So my dad tells my mom, uh, yeah, this Cambodian family is going to come live with us. And so I've actually got a picture, I think, of them. And it was, it was a married family and then, I think, cousins of, of uh, two cousins that aren't shown there. And so this is our family in our house. They lived with us for um, almost a year. I was always a little twerp. That's me. Um, but um, it's Foy Long and Mui Kier and Mo Song, um, I forget, Sukim, and then Omoy is the baby who pretty soon became Jennifer, okay? And so it was crazy. I was talking to my dad about it again last night. My dad's like, yeah, we, got, we went and picked them up at the San Francisco airport on a Saturday, uh, Saturday. On Sunday, Foy Long sat down with an old army um, dictionary thing, English to Cambodian phrases. And he took hours and kind of penciled out this letter that doesn't really make any sense. But it's crazy. It says, person eat person. Um, you know, and a lot of other crazy things. And so, can you imagine being in a, in a place where children with machine guns are killing people at will, willy-nilly, you know, and, and you're trying to escape with your family and all the fear and all the malnutrition and all the lack of help and that nobody cares and there's no one to talk to, living in refugee camps um, and then coming to the States. How many, how many people could have done that? If, if we mobilized, like how many more families could have brought, been brought in? Now, it has nothing to do with me. It has to do with my dad. My dad was an alien. He was an immigrant. And you'd never know it talking to him, but um, you yourselves were aliens in Egypt. And so I have regard for the aliens. My sister was a little older than me. I think she got it more than I did. She won this kind of um, businesswoman of the year thing, whatever, down in L.A. last year. She's a lawyer, and she'd been doing all this pro bono case for people that are seeking asylum. You know, so it's it's not a story about me. It's a story about my family. I'm kind of the caboose in my family when it comes to dealing with the international stuff. I'm on my tricycle, like going really fast. 
okay? Um, but if we understand that we're strangers, that we're aliens, we were just born into this lifeboat. We didn't do anything to deserve it. We're no different than the person that's out there drowning in the frigid water. Then maybe, just maybe we'll mobilize. So the second thing is just this. We can't change the world until we understand until we can empathize, until we have perspective, until we realize that those are real people with real needs, we can't change the world until we understand. And so God says, you were an alien, so now love the alien. I remember watching the movie The Band of Brothers when this really came home to me that I just didn't get it. And I'm watching The Band of Brothers movie, and I mean, how many of you guys saw that, that HBO special on World War II? And you remember the part where they're coming into Holland and they liberate... Um, They liberate the Dutch, and all of a sudden, everybody's celebrating over here, but over here, there's these chaotic scenes going on, and they're dragging women out, putting them up, and they're they're just cutting their their hair off, butchering it, and slicing their heads because they have no concern for these women, and they're just shearing their heads. And the whole idea was in the movie that, you know, one of the American soldiers says, what's going on? And someone else tells them, well, those are women that, that collaborated with the Nazis or slept with Nazi soldiers. And my dad was Dutch and grew up in that environment. And I went to my dad. I was like, wow, dad, that was crazy. And I was watching this movie and they were doing this. And I'm like, man, you know, I, I, could, I can't imagine that people would collaborate with the Nazis. And my dad just shut me down in the tone in his voice and everything else. And he just says, Ken, um, women will do a lot of things to put food in the mouth of their children. And I, that was the end of the conversation. I didn't understand. We don't understand. And so it leads to hypocrisy because there's inaction that results from lack of knowledge and lack of empathy. Do you know that the word compassion, just it really means with, come, and to bear, um, to bear or to suffer. And so we, we suffer with or we bear alongside it's what compassion is. And that's what we're called to. So first thing, we can't change the world until we can clean toilets. Second thing, we can't change the world until we understand. And if we understand, we won't be stupid. Uh, I, I once heard someone say, you know, if, if you're going to change the world, you shouldn't have as your slogan, let's stamp out landmines. You know, I mean, you come into it a little bit smarter, hopefully. You know, um, here's the last thing. Turn to Psalms with Psalm with me. Psalm 10. Psalm 10 says this. I'll start in verse 12 and just read down. Arise, Lord, lift up your hand, O God. Do not forget the helpless. Why does the wicked man revile God? Why does he say to himself, why won't um, he won't call me to account? But you, O God, do see trouble and grief. You consider it and you take it in hand. The victim commits himself to you. You are the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evil man. Call him to account for his wickedness. Call him to account for his wickedness. The Lord is king forever and ever. The nations will perish from his land. You hear, O Lord, the desire of the afflicted. You encourage them and you listen to their cry, defending the fatherless and the oppressed in order that man who is of the earth may terrify no more. 
Here's the third thing. We can't change the world until we realize it's too big for us. We can't change the world until we realize it's too big for us. It's the lesson that God gave to Gideon. It's not numbers. And so pare it down until you realize that you can't do it without me. It's like the boy that had a few loaves of bread. And Jesus took those and multiplied those. It's not about us being big and saving the world. It's about us being small enough to care and take the risk and make the sacrifices so that a big God can use us in some kind of a worthy way. I love what Hudson Taylor said. Hudson Taylor, if you know, is the famous missionary to China early on. And his view of things was impossible, possible, and done. His whole view of missions and of prayer was impossible, possible, and then done. That God takes things that are impossible, makes them possible, works with people and through people that love him and will follow the call and gets things done. One more statistic for you. I've got this on the board. 30,000 children die each day due to poverty. That's uh, 210,000 children a week. Most of it's preventable, but here I want to give it some perspective. So on on 9-11, 2,752, this is the latest count as of like the last six months, people died. On D-Day, when we stormed the beaches of Normandy, 2,500 people died, Americans. There are four D-Days every single day. Now, we don't care just because it's not happening on our soil. Some of it happens on our soil, but we don't care because most of it happens in India or Asia or Africa. And so we sit in our lifeboat and we go, wow, I'm lucky. And we realize the risk and we assess the sacrifice and we refrain because it's easy when everyone in the boat wants to stay back and not do anything. It's easy for us to capitulate, turn our back and go on with life as as usual. And we can't do that. Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. If I could split myself into two and say self, yes, self. Um, Self, I'm over here in Africa and it hurts. Um, I would say to myself, uh, I'll be there. I'll get on a plane. I'll, I'll stop buying Starbucks. I'll do whatever I can. But there's no way I would let myself stay in a situation that I could do something about. And we've got to get that, and we've got to chew on it, and we've got to digest it, and we've got to hear things like Psalm 82, where it says, defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. That's active. It takes initiation. Maintain the rights of the poor and the oppressed. Rescue the weak and needy. What's the word that always goes with rescue? Mission. Rescue mission. It's something that you plan out, you strategize, you organize, and then you put into effect. Luke 12.33 says this, Sell your possessions and give to charity. Make yourself purses which do not wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven, where no thief comes near nor moth destroys. Make for yourself treasures in heaven. Now, here's the thing. This isn't a uh, pledge drive. We're doing a three-week series at Antioch called uh, a human rights series. And this is not a pledge drive. This is not a squeeze to get your money. 
It's not something that's supposed to just um, get you to, to write that guilt check or anything like that. Because the reality of it is, is uh, we're not all Bill Gates. We're not. I mean, and, and I struggle with that, and, and I'm sure you struggle with that, and you're like, well, what can I really do? I can't, I can't change the world. I'm not Bill Gates, and I don't have that kind of money, and I don't know where I fit. And the whole idea of this series is trying to help us just wrestle and collaborate and think through and allow God to, to maybe speak into a couple people or bring out a couple ideas that somehow will be dominoes, that will hit other dominoes, and will lead to change. I mean, it's not some grand just emotional appeal. That's not what this is about. Everything begins with talking. Everything begins with a shared kind of spirit. You ever done those ropes courses where you have to get all the people up over the wall and you have to figure out how to get like eight people up over the wall? What Antioch's involved with right now is saying, how do we get like 300 or 350 people together up over this wall? We've got a challenge. We've got, we've got a, an opportunity. And how do we collaborate together to somehow, like in those ropes courses, move all these people up over the wall and in the same direction? That's what this is about. And so when, when I think about how I'm processing all this and how you might be processing this and, and what do you do? What's an immediate response? It's not necessarily an immediate response. It's, it's an attitude. It's something that God puts in your heart. It's something he hopefully will lead you into. And so I, even though I've never shown a Kevin Costner movie clip in my whole life, um, I just couldn't get away from, from this, from the movie The Guardian, where Kevin Costner is a rescue swimmer for the Coast Guard. And the guy he's talking with right now is someone that he trained that has now just completed his training and, and kind of here's this candid moment between the two of them. So. I would have asked you back in school, and I didn't. But uh, when you can't save them all, how do you choose who lives? Probably different for everybody, Jake. Kind of simple for me, though. I just, I take the first one I come to or the weakest one in the group, and then I swim as fast and as hard as I can for as long as I can. And the sea takes the rest. The essence of the gospel is Jesus coming and doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. When we live out the gospel, we take that into the world and say there are people that cannot help themselves. They can't do anything to help themselves. But we can do something for them, just like Christ did something for us. And we become the body of Christ when we do that. We become the hands, we become the feet, we become the body of Christ when we actively go out into this world and love on others. And we can't save everyone. And we rely on God somehow being big enough to, to, to work it all out. But you take the first one you come to, take the weakest one, and you swim as long as you can, as hard as you can. And at the end of the day, you, you go to bed with a smile on your face saying, I'm not a hypocrite. Um, I want to go to bed at the end of the day with a smile on my face and say, I'm not committing sins of ignorance. I'm leading my boat back into those waters, even if it's risky. Let's pray.
Father, um, do something mighty with this church. I pray that you would just kill on us the the little seed of self-concern where we would always defer to our own selves rather than recklessly or with abandon running out and trying to love on others that need us to be a little bit reckless. So Father, kill on us just that self-desire and allow us to be used by you. In Christ's name, amen.